Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the Band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to... You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 161 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, Des Rocks, I want to remind you about all of the features that you'll find at mistresscarrie.com. Not only will you find every episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast and every episode of my video show, Cocktails in the War Room, but you'll also find an extensive concert calendar with all of the shows coming to New England all year long. You can send me a message right here in the studio. Just click the message the studio button. There's all the links to all of my social pages and all of the outlets for the Mistress Carrie podcast. Plus, you can check out my blog, my photo galleries, and you can shop in the official online Mistress Carrie store. Find all that and more online at mistresscarrie.com. I'm super excited about my guest this week because I always love being able to turn you on to newer artists. And I cannot wait for you to meet Des Rocks. He was born Daniel Rocco and grew up in New York. And from a very early age, he tackled music, starting with the violin, then becoming a guitar player and forming his own bands in high school. And now he's getting ready to release his sophomore album called Dream Machine coming up on August 25th. Matter of fact, this is the first interview that he did talking about the upcoming album. I've seen Des Rocks a couple times in Vegas and more recently saw him on the road with Bad Flower and Tiger Cub. So I got a chance to sit down and talk to Des Rocks about the upcoming new album, the differences between the East Coast and West Coast, touring with bands like the Rolling Stones and Muse, what it's like to win over a crowd like from Metallica when you're the opening act, the resurgence of rock and roll in the last few years, and the difficulties of playing in a three-piece band. Plus, he goes into detail about his hilarious Spinal Tap moment, his idea of the perfect song, and so much more. This is an artist that if you love rock and roll, you need to not only check out the music, but I beg you, when he comes around, go see Des Rocks. Once you see him live, you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about. So allow me to introduce you to Des Rocks. Mr. Des Rocks. Hey, how are you? I'm really good. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great. I'm really great. The first, first of all, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. You. Uh, second of all, I always ask musicians first, do you even know where the hell you are? Because you guys are never in, a, in the same place very long. 
for the first time in a long time, I do because I'm home. I just got back two days ago. Oh, so you're, I saw you recently in Portland, Maine with Bad Flowers. So you're home now. Yeah, I'm home now. Oh, you were at that show. That was I was. Movie. Yeah, that was fun. Um, yeah, it's good to be back. And in between the time that you last saw me in Portland, I was also in deep rural Croatia for a couple of days. And now I'm back. What the hell yeah. were you doing in Croatia? So in Croatia, they'll let you pretty much do whatever you want to film videos in a way that you can't in New York or Los Angeles. Uh, so we went, I got a little crazy and we filmed all the album music videos in Croatia and just got back. So it's really, it was really crazy. A lot of fun. I want to start at the beginning because I've seen you a few times live. I've, awesome. I've seen you play at a bunch of the radio conventions in Vegas. Mm. And then I got to see you recently in Portland, Maine, when you were on the road with Tiger Cub and Bad Flower. And when I talk to people about you, I have a really hard time explaining to them what you're like as a musician and a performer, because I feel like it's one of those things where there's a little bit of everything in the pot. Mm -hmm. So I'm a bit of a mutt. Yeah. Yeah. So do you mind if we go back to kind of the beginning and talk about your musical upbringing so we can kind of dissect what's in that pot? Because it's fantastic. I'm a huge fan. Thanks so much. But uh, but figuring out all these influences, there's a lot going on. So you can obviously tell, and I say this as an Italian from Boston, that you're an Italian guy from New York. What gave it away? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, considering the fact that your name's Daniel Rocco for real, I wondered where Des Rocks came from. And then I saw that and I was like, oh, yeah, that's probably a neighborhood nickname, right? <laughs> well, I thought like Danny Rocco just sounded a little too much like a protagonist from like a 70s Stallone movie. It was a little, <laughs> it was a little too on the nose, you know, um, and Des Rocks is just like a really fun, bizarro world interpretation of that name. You were born and raised in New York. Where in New York? I was born and raised in Long Island. Okay. Uh, about 30 minutes that way from where I am now in Manhattan. And uh, then I lived in Brooklyn for many years. Uh, and now I'm in Manhattan. So does the family make fun of you now that you're in Manhattan? Yeah, well, it's like I'm 30 minutes away, right? And my whole family is just Brooklyn, Queens, Long Island. Brooklyn, Queens, Long Island. So living in Manhattan, it's like I might as well be living in Los Angeles. You know, it's like <laughs> it's so far west. It's like just one little thin strip of the East River, and it's like I'm in another continent. And they're like, we're not coming to visit you. You're coming to visit us. Well, it's always like, oh, I'm not going into the city. I'm not, I don't want to go into the city. It's 30 minutes. And also, for those in Brooklyn and Queens, you're already technically in the city, so I don't buy that. <laughs> you know? So growing up, what was what was the family like? Like, what was, what what's the family business? Is it music? Uh, no, not at all. Um, I grew up to a very, very Queen-centric family, and my dad sold wheelchairs and oxygen tanks. And that's the business that I grew up in. Um, but I was always kind of making my own businesses. Like when I was 12, 13, I just was immediately in bands, and I was playing every single little punk 
dive bar that all of New York had to offer. Um, so I was kind of just forging my own path from a very young age. And you were asking about like those early influences. I remember seeing uh, a video of Queen live at Wembley. And the first second I saw that, I was just like transfixed. And from that moment on, I was completely obsessed with a very specific type of rock music, big rock music, you know, like really big music for a lot of people that unites a lot of people. And that's been my obsession ever since. So that kind of answers the second part of this question that I ask every musician that comes on the show. I have a theory about music that there's the soundtrack to your childhood, which is the music you get exposed to, whether you like it or not, by your older brother, the cool uncle, your mom and dad, grandparents, whoever. And then there's a line in the sand where you see something and go, no, 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 that's what I like. So Queen for you is the line in the sand thing, but what's the soundtrack to the childhood? What's playing when you're a kid that you remember on the radio, getting played on albums or whatever growing up? Like, what were you hearing as a kid? Oh, it's such a motley mix. You know, I heard a lot of Elvis. Um, I was also exposed to a lot of early Long Island hardcore and emo music. Um, also a tremendous amount of ACDC and Led Zeppelin. Um, that was kind of like this weird stew of everything that maybe is why I am the way I am now. It's unbelievable to me how much ACDC comes up. Obviously, they're huge and they're amazing, but they've always been known as kind of like that party band, but so many musicians, especially guitar players, always cite ACDC as a huge influence and not just because of Angus, but because of Malcolm. Oh, 100%. Like the rhythm guitar playing and like the way it's all just laid down, just these three, four guys on four guys and playing instruments, but there's just something so hypnotic about the grooves and so simple. And in that simplicity to find something that's that big, to me, that's like the perfect recipe. You know, if you just have two guitars, bass, drums, vocals, and it's that enormous, like that is what I think I've been chasing my whole life. So if your dad's selling wheelchairs and oxygen tanks, who put a guitar in your hand the first time? How did that happen? Does musical ability show up somewhere in the Rocco jeans? Uh, you know, I not really, to be honest. I just, I remember being a little kid and seeing kids who were older than me walking to school with these little cases. They would just carry these little cases and they would open the little case and there would be a little velvet um, cloth. They'd open the cloth and it would reveal this like beautiful wooden instrument. And I just remember seeing these like little baby violins and cellos. And I immediately begged my mom uh, to play violin at a really young age. And I did that for a couple of years. And then one day I was just rummaging around in my attic in Long Island. And I came upon a case and I blew the dust off the case. And I opened it like the way I, I just love the reveal of the instrument, you know. And there was this old classical guitar um, and turns out my mom bought one in the 60s, tried it for a couple of days, didn't really like it. And it had been up there ever since. Um, and I had three strings and I did the best I could with it. But from that moment on, I was just completely like all the stars aligned with what I was seeing with Queen, finding this guitar, loving instruments my whole life. Um, and it all just synthesized in like the eighth grade in one big like original explosion, you know. It sounds like such a 60s thing that like, 
you know, everybody wanted to be Joni Mitchell or something and want to be the singer-songwriter. I'm going to buy an acoustic guitar and bare my soul. She does it yeah. for the weekend. Is like, yeah, not so much. Going in the attic. It's very Joni Mitchell, 100%. Yeah. So when you're discovering this guitar in the attic and you're discovering Queen at Wembley, you pick this guitar up. Did you inherently know how to play it or did you go and take lessons? Because there are people, a lot of them, that can just pick it up and play it and teach Mm -hmm. themselves by ear. And then there's other people that are like, no, I took lessons. I had somebody else in the neighborhood that played that showed me the chords. Were you one of those lucky people that was just that was just born to play the guitar? You know, I, I think I was uh, because even as a little kid, I always gravitated towards like toy guitars. There's like so many videos of me at some like distant friend or cousins like bar mitzvah in Long Island or Queens or Brooklyn. And I'm just like rocking out in a restaurant on a fake guitar. There's a lot of that. Um, and then I picked up this thing. And because I've been playing the violin, I kind of knew my way around. But I thought, OK, let me take a lesson. I took one or two lessons. And I just don't listen well. You know, I'm I'm not good at following instructions or (laughs) playing other people's music. And I immediately just wanted to make my own music, you know. Um, So I I just took like one or two. And then the rest of that, I just went by ear. I still don't know what I'm doing on guitar. I I just I I really don't. You know, I don't even think of myself as much of a guitarist, even though it's like a guitarist behind me. But to me, it's just like a tool of expression. I just kind of emote on it and i think i have a good enough way to get around and it's really just it's more emotional for me than than musical it's so crazy the more i talk to musicians about that early like you're saying like you were playing on toy guitars when you were a little kid when i was a kid my parents bought me this little like toy like tape recorder and microphone and i was And I was like fixated with it and like running around the house and like recording my voice and like doing interviews with my stuffed animals. Then I graduated to hiding it in the rooms where the parents were when they'd kick us out. No. Because I wanted to know what the adults were talking about when they kicked us out of the room. And it's so funny to look back now at you with that toy guitar, me with that little recorder, because it's like, what we were destined to end up doing was right there all along. And where oh, does that come from? I, you know, I think I really truly believe it's just in your blood. Like, I think there's something about you that this version of you born at this time in the 20th century, you know, like you just had the predisposition to it. Did you see that documentary with like the three triplets who were separated <gasps> at birth a couple years ago? Oh my God. I watched that on a plane. I watched on a plane too. And and I was, the more the story unfolded, I kept thinking to myself while I was watching it, it can't get any worse. (laughs) It can't can't get any worse. Mm -hmm. Like to me, a documentary about triplets that were separated at birth that find each other later, that's the plot for me, right? That's not even the first 10 minutes of this documentary. What is that documentary called? Because I got to link it in this episode. So people, you have to watch this do. documentary. Yeah. I, and you know It's like, I forget the name of it completely, but I always just reference it as that documentary about the triplets separated at birth. 
But I think it's so crazy because remember when they're all meeting up for the first time and they have all the same interests? Yes. You know what I mean? They just love all the same stuff. And that to me is so revealing. Like you were born to have a microphone. Like I was born to play guitar. You three, know? three identical strangers. Three identical strangers. That's it. Yeah. Watch this documentary. It will blow your mind. <laughs> It'll make you happy. And it will literally destroy everything you think about the world all in one film. I, I was on this plane at one point sobbing. Like yeah. asking the flight attendant for those annoying little square napkins they bring you. And she's like bringing one. And I'm like, honey, <laughs> I'm a crier. I'm going to need a handful of those, please. Is this the first documentary recommendation on the show? Uh, no, there's definitely been some. It's it. You know, I love what I do so much because. A, I love music. B. I too had that fixation with instruments growing up and had the little case that, that, you know, when you opened it, unveiled my clarinet. Oh, clarinet. Nice. And my, my glorious clarinet career began and ended with the marching band and I just sucked at it. And <laughs> I don't have this inherent musical ability but I'm lucky enough to be surrounded by musicians with what I do. Mm -hmm. And I'm so fascinated by all of it because A, I can't do it. And B, and I think you're a music person too. Music people are different, right? Mm -hmm. Like my mom was a music person. My dad was a music person, meaning Every story in your life is tied to a song, an album, what you were listening to in the car with your friends. Like music is is literally in every part of, of you as a person. There are some people that are not like that. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed Jay Buchanan from Rival Sons recently. And he we were talking about this very thing. And he goes, don't trust those people. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. Like the, the human human beings are this crazy spectrum, but I think it's good that the clarinet didn't work out for you because what you're doing is way more badass than a career <laughs> in klezmer music. You know what I mean? So I think you, you, it was, it all worked out, you know? Plus there's just no heavy metal clarinet. Like there's no, like there's rock saxophone. We live in this world where like, Johannes Eckerstrom from Avatars got the freaking trombone in the show. Giovanni and the Hired Guns are making tubas cool again. Like Apocalyptic is rocking the cello. The Who has got these Mongolian traditional like folk instruments and they're making heavy metal. Nobody has said we're going to make clarinets great again. Like nobody has said that in rock and roll yet. Not yet. I think I think you're launching something here. I mean, we had flute with Jethro Tull, so I think and you're, Lizzo I think you're close. now and Lizzo now and Lizzo. Yeah, she's made flutes cool again. Nobody is doing anything with clarinets. Nobody. Yeah. I think Woody Allen kind of ruined the clarinet for a couple of decades. You know what I mean? That's that's my take on the my hot take on the instrument. You know, he's kind of the face of the clarinet. And the thing is, like, I love it. Like, I love music so much, and that. When I hear clarinet and like cool New Orleans jazz music, I'm like, oh, that sounds so cool. I have one. I have literally no incentive or like yearning to pick it up and like try to play it again. Yeah. Just none. It's it's just it's there. Tough. 
And I feel like clarinets, like if you don't play them for a long time, you can't just pick it up. You got this whole reed system that I don't understand. The reed is dry. The reed is broken. The reed is cracked. I don't know. It's not easy. You can't just pick it up and play. <laughs> you know? So when you you pick up your mom's Joni Mitchell guitar, right? And you start <laughs> strumming along on it. You take a couple lessons, whatever. At what point do you figure out that you can write songs? Almost immediately. I think because I was just so bad at learning other people's songs that I would start to learn somebody else's riff or chord progression. And I would immediately try to make it my own. You know, I would immediately be like, oh, that's not how I would do it. I prefer it like this, you know. And I would just kind of give up 75% of the way there on learning the other person's riff. And I would just kind of have my own version that I did. Uh, so if I ever did like a cover with friends or something in the basement, 12, 13, um, I would just be like the worst person to play with. What what riff do you remember mastering and being like, oh, wait, I think I might be good at this. Do you remember what song it was? Purple Haze, uh, Jimi Hendrix, 100%. Because it's just like, you know, I really figured that one out. I remember just being in my bedroom all day, all night. I was like, I'm not giving up on this riff. I want to play this riff. And I got it. And I just, I was like so proud of myself. So you're playing Purple Haze on an acoustic, which mm-hmm. not easy. Doesn't sound good. No. <laughs> I didn't say it sounded, yeah, it wasn't easy. It didn't sound good. Yeah. Growing up in the boroughs as a teenager with a band, like I grew up in the suburbs where you could like have a garage and space between houses. So you weren't annoying the shit out of the neighbors as bad. But when you're the kid in the neighborhood with a band now, did everybody in the neighborhood immediately hate you? Yeah, it's it's crazy how unaware you are of things like that <laughs> for so long. So like you go to a pool, right? You see like a bunch of four or five, six year olds. They're screaming their heads off. Marco Polo. They just don't know. They don't know how loud their voices are. And it's crazy how long that continues in life. So here I am like 14, 15 I'm just like cranking an amp in my room and I do not realize how loud I'm being until somebody knocks on the door and they're like, hey, are you serious? You know, are you out of your mind? Or do you cr- turn it down? Turn it off. You're done. And you know, the amount of times I've just been like hard shut down in my life, even when I moved to the city um, in Manhattan, I was just like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to like play a guitar through a Marshall half stack and like uh, that's going to be totally okay. Uh, and then you kind of develop a little bit more awareness, uh, but it's not easy. It's, it's really not. You, you, you wind up practice with, amp and headphones and then it's okay. Yeah. And you, the classical guitar was a lot easier, but you wind up in a lot of these really just like unimaginably disgusting and horrifying rehearsal spaces in and around New York city that I've like spent my life in, you know what I mean? Like the basements with the cockroaches, the wiring is all janky. You go to plug something in, you get blown back to the stone age. You know what I mean? Um, and and that's like where you kind of seek refuge in the boroughs in New York City. In Boston, we had a lot of buildings like that. Old warehouse buildings that they put up walls and like bands were able to rent those walls. And at one point or another, the guitar player was living in there with his girlfriend and like whatever. Oh, yeah. But the cities now, because the real estate's so valuable. Those practice spaces are disappearing more and more in the cities. Is it the same thing in New York? 100%. They get farther away from the center of the city and simultaneously worse, you know? So they get farther and grosser and more expensive, <laughs> you know? And uh, it's it's not easy. Even like my space now, it's like not, 
not anything that great, or but it's mine, you know, uh, it's cozy. And what's also so crazy about these spaces is that you'll have a band in a room and there'll be a one on top, left, right, bottom. So that's one, two, three, four people around you. Every single person's playing a different kind of music at the exact same time. And uh, it's like this sonic assault that makes it nearly impossible to rehearse. But I think everything about being an artist and especially about being Des Rocks is about just kind of swimming upstream and fighting those odds. You know what I mean? I, I couldn't imagine living in a place that's like objectively gorgeous. And I have this big production facility and I walk in there and I casually rehearse with the band. You know, it's just just not the speed we operate at. When you were in school and you're and you're playing guitar, were you a good student or was it something where you're just like, I just can't wait to graduate because I need to just be in a band? Oh, no, I was a great student, actually. Um, I love to learn. I love learning how things work um, because my parents instilled in me at a very early age this kind of like ultimate independence, you know, maybe like a little too much. But even that, like as a little kid, I had to, I had to like make all my own food, you know, I make my own breakfast, all, all this kind of stuff. Um, so I always like love knowing how things work because you're less likely to get screwed if you just kind of know what's going on, especially when it comes to like your business and your whole uh, team. So from a very early age, I just, I, I kind of liked it. I, I liked learning um, for sure. Cause it just, anything I could use to like help my music, I was like a hundred percent, let's do it. And it seems like something that when you grow up with an Italian heritage in the family, that that's part of the culture too, myself included, that it was like, you're in kindergarten, go to work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I was working like the second you were early enough to apply to work with parental consent. So I think in New York, it was 14. And I just couldn't wait to get a job so that I can make money so that I can go to Guitar Center. You know what I mean? And that was like my my brain, the thinking. It was like, it wasn't like, oh, uh, girls and drinking and this. I was like, job, money, Guitar Center, band. Job, money, guitar center, band. Loop, 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 loop. Job during the day, music at night. And that cycle just existed for like, you know, a decade. <laughs> when you um, were putting a band together, was it easy to find kids in the neighborhood that played drums, that played bass? Like, was it easy? Did you have friends around or were you the only musician and you had to like put an ad in the paper or something? There was a little of both. Like, you know, I would find people and there was a great little community on the South Shore of Long Island. And there were a lot of kids making music. So I would just always be going to shows, always jamming. I would go to these events just like as a as an observer. You know, I would just watch. I was like, what's every band doing? Like, what do I love about this? What do I not like about this? And I would meet so many people that way. So I was able to put together a lot of bands early on, but I was never singing. I was never singing. I was really just a guitar player. Um, I was like maybe a little uncertain about my voice. And uh, it took me a long time. I mean, really until Des Rocks, until I was singing lead vocals, which was like 2018. So you just started singing a few years ago? Yeah, singing lead vocals. And I was always the backup singer and, uh, and the guitar player. Um, but a lot of people would comment when they would come to shows, those early bands, like, you know, you look like you're about to like burst out of a cage. Cause I, I really wanted to be leading the show. I had so many ideas for it. Um, but yeah, only in 2018 was I like releasing music where I was singing. When you go and see Des Rocks, you, you're talking about like the energy and wanting to run around and all of that stuff. For somebody that goes to see you the first time, 
you can't stand still on that <laughs> stage. It's like it's like you've been possessed almost that like as soon as you get on that stage, you don't stop moving. Yeah, yeah. It's an intense show. Um I think for us being on stage is so existential, right? Because we spend our entire lives here in like New York and Boston. It's like a very East Coast mentality. You spend your entire life trying to like really do it, trying to really get there, trying to really make it. And anytime I have an opportunity to show even a room of 25 people what I've been working on, what I'm about, what I want to say to the world musically, I'm just so grateful for that moment. And the whole show itself is like one giant cathartic expression of the other 23 hours of the day that are so hard when you're trying to be an artist. Um, and it's the most present I ever am as a human being is when I'm on stage. I forget who, who said it, but there was a musician that says, you know, you don't pay me for the two hours on stage. You pay me for the 22 hours that I'm not. Yeah, because the I two hours on stage I would do for free. Mm -hmm. But the other 22 were, um, you know, on the road, away from my family, like not doing what I want to be doing, sitting in a bus, whatever, that that's the hard part. The stage part's easy. Oh, yeah. I mean, this Bad Flower show, I couldn't agree with that more. This Bad Flower run we just did, it was 45 shows. Um, and we were in a van. And most of the time we'd get off stage, pack up all night, drive all night, and just like not go to bed multiple nights in a row, multiple nights in a row to make it to the next show. Um, so a lot of people don't know what goes into it behind the scenes, but I also don't want them to know about it. You know what I mean? Like, cause when you're at that show, I want you to be completely like escaped. I, I want you to be escaped from your life. I want you to be escaped from my life. And I want you to be as present as I am because everybody else is going through shit too. And, and to me, rock and roll is the ultimate vessel of escape. One of the other documentaries you asked, you know, is this the first documentary uh, recommendation on the show? One of the ones that comes up all the time is that documentary that Dave Grohl made mm. about touring in a van. Yeah. And how that kind of um, experience every band has in common. Oh, and, yeah. And how important it is for the fusing of the parts of a band to, to kind of embrace the suck together, to, to steal a military term, that like to go through the rigors and the all of the bad stuff and the, the, the farts and the being uncovered. When in Dave Grohl's documentary, when Ringo talked about being in a van with the Beatles and the Beatles farting, I was like, oh my God, the Beatles toured in a van and they all farted. Like, yeah, it seems like something you just have to do, the van touring. You got to do it. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough existence. And, you know, some artists only do that for a very short period of time. They're very lucky. You know, other artists do it for a long, long time. I think like like one of the artists I have a lot of respect for who really like pounded it out and paid their dues is the Black Keys. Like they were in a van for a very long time. So I, I take inspirations like that because like, you know, we've been fortunate to be in buses every once in a while, depending on the tour and the bands we're with. But we're usually in vans. And like this last tour, we were in a van as well. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's it's so important to have those experiences because the relationships you build offstage really translate to the stage itself. I think it's important to note that you're bringing up the Black Keys. There's two guys. Des Rocks, there's three guys. 
It's a hell of a lot different being in a van in Des Rocks than being in a van with Slipknot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, their wardrobe must take up so much space, too. <laughs> so at least we don't have that. Yeah. And, and it's not that many people. Right. You know, um, when you're in a rock band with five or six guys and you're in a van, it's a completely different experience. Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. It's um, I'm definitely grateful that we don't have a huge crew. We have a couple of people off stage who are amazing, but on stage, it's just three. So we're pretty lean and mean, you know, the album's called Dream Machine. It comes out August 25th. Is the Dream Machine the van? It's not, but you could be interpreted as it without a <laughs> doubt, you know, because I want the Dream Machine to be a vessel of, of interpretation for the audience. And it's crazy even talking to you about it right now because this is the first time i've really talked about the album to anybody um and just like hearing you even say dream machine which has like been this thing so important to me for the last 18 months it's the first time i've heard anybody say it back to me so it's it's a weird it's a weird feeling well that is i mean it is coming out like yeah it is yeah but when you uh, like again because i'm not a musician i can't imagine this creative process right and and i've asked other musicians about it where like you get these ideas for these songs wherever they come from you pull them out of the ether you know whatever then you've got to be creative with your band trust an outsider like a producer enough to work on these songs and they've been a secret mm -hmm. and now like you're talking about you're getting ready to release them to the world where it's kind of like a parent and the kid turns 18 and goes, I'm out of here and you can't control them anymore. And, and good, bad, or indifferent, you don't, they're not yours anymore. They're not private anymore. Right. So that's gotta it's, be nerve wracking. It is. It's, it's a really bizarre feeling. Um, it's, it's like, I, I've kind of likened it to holding a really full cup of coffee and you're about to sneeze. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's kind of how I think of it. You're just like, ah, you know, it's, 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 you don't know what's going to happen. Um, and you just, I, you know, I only have one thought really that, that goes on with, it. I just hope people hear it. You know, you spend so much time on tour, like as like a door to door vacuum salesman, but of music instead of vacuums. And you walk into every city and you just go in and go, here's what I'm about. Here's my whole mission statement. I want to create rock and roll that is enormous as it was in the past, but thoroughly modernized for the future. I want to be the next Foo Fighters, the next Bruce Springsteen, the next Queen. And you just kind of like bear your entire soul and your entire mission statement. And you just hope that people get to really hear it. Um, because I think people will really connect to this album and that's my life's work without a doubt. Uh, as the Bostonian, I have to say your coffee analogy, um, it wouldn't be as bad if you had a Dunks iced coffee cause those lids are pretty good. Yeah. You're holding a, a full, a completely full Dunkin'. You've taken the lid off. On oh. one hand, you've got bagel bites, everything bagel bites with little bits of cream cheese inside. Why would you take the lid off? Why? Maybe it's, maybe it's too hot and you want to blow on it. Like, that's why you drink the iced coffee, dude. Yeah, iced coffee's good. We, I mean, when we're in the Northeast, we just live off Dunkin'. It's so funny. It it really is hilarious. Like, I I saw this TikTok video, and I hate even saying, I saw this video on TikTok, like, because it's become such a thing over the last couple of years. But because you and I are like, we're from the Northeast, and we have Italian heritage, like there's a lot of similarity there, even though New York and Boston has that famous rivalry. But I saw this amazing video 
that really encapsulated the personality type for people like you and I, that the difference between like East Coasters and West Coasters is the difference between being nice and kind. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I love this. And anybody that doesn't know what I'm talking about, the analogy that was given in this TikTok video was if you're on the West Coast and you get a flat tire and you're stuck on the side of the road, that the nice Californian will pull over and say, oh my God, you got a flat tire. I feel so bad. I'm so sorry that happened to you. And then get in the car and drive away. Goodbye. Yeah. And, And the East Coaster is going to pull over and go, the fuck you hit, you idiot? Get out of the way, and they change your tire for you. So they're kind but not nice. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I love, like, any East Coast, West Coast analogy like that because you're, I'm, I'm always in both places so much, and I have so much East Coast pride that this stuff really clicks close to home to me. You know, it's like they say, like, the East Coast – the West Coast is boring heaven and the East Coast is fun hell. And I, I couldn't agree with that more. I've never heard that, but that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I could like rattle them off for days. Like on the East Coast, they and the, and the West Coast, they stab me in the back and the East Coast, they stab me in the front. You know, I love that kind of stuff. Well, working in the music business, you're going to spend a lot of time on both coasts. And for me, when I go to California, I can only handle it for like four or five days. And then I'm like, I got to get the fuck out of here. I melt, you know, it's like, I appreciate all the fans there, but it's like being Superman being away from the sun for too long. You kind of like lose all your energy and I'll try to go for a long walk and it'll be four in the morning because I'm jet lagged and I'm walking along the side of the 405 and someone's saying, why are you walking? You can't walk in California. So I'm going to walk it. And yeah, that's pretty much how it goes every time I'm out there. So when you put the band together and you get the record deal, tell me what it's like with the Rocco family. When you become legit, when you, uh, when you go man. home and you tell the family, I, I quote unquote made it that like, I'm a professional musician. It's so, that's such a funny question because there's so much to dissect there. <laughs> um, I knew my, my there own, would be. Like my own perceptions of making it and, and things like that. Cause I feel like I still, I feel like it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. And that, that road is still entirely ahead of me. But just for example, like um, I've had, I've been blessed with some amazing opportunities. I got to tour with the Rolling Stones. I got to tour with Muse. My parents will think it's far greater of achievement if I am written up in the local Long Island newspaper. (laughs) And if I perform to 80,000 people a night, you know what I mean? So record deal, fantastic. Am I in the Rockville Center Herald? Whoa, we're going to clip it out. We're going to we're going to send it to all the friends. We're going to share it on Facebook. That's the big deal. So a record deal signing, they're like, that's great. If the record label was like the Long Island record label, oh, it would be the biggest deal. Can you tell the label when the album comes out? Can you get them to take a full page Dream Machine ad out in the local paper so that you can make your parents proud? Then I will have made it. Like Then I will have actually made it, you know, by universal standards. Yeah. That's a fantastic idea. You, right. dude, the second you, we're done, I'm doing that. You yeah. have to do that because I want this thing cut out and framed <laughs> on mom's wall. Yeah. It would get its own room yeah. <laughs> in the house. Yeah. 
So oh to circle God. back to what we were talking about at the beginning, when I try to explain to people what it's like to go and see you, when I saw you in Portland recently, anytime I go to a show just doing what I do, I always try to get there to watch the openers because to me, as a non-musician, it seems like such a hard thing to know that the people in the crowd aren't there to see you and that you got to win them over. Mm -hmm. And when you're touring with the Stones, they're not there to see Desrox. They're there to see Mick and Keith. When you're touring with Muse, they're there to see Muse. So I see you with Bad Flower. The place is sold out. The place is packed. And you're going out there hoping that people are just going to hear the music and they're going to like the music. But you know when you're one of the openers that the odds are they've not heard you before. And mm -hmm. so you got to go out there knowing that a lot of them don't know the songs and that you're going to win them over. And so when I saw you in Portland, I'm watching you. And I'm watching the crowd and watching the heads bob. And it was like it, it was like spreading like a virus, like like one guy's bobbing his head, then everybody around him. Then the phone started coming out and people are starting to take video of you because now all of a sudden they want to share it with their friends. Can you feel that spread from the stage? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, we. We have like a saying in our crew where it's like, you, we know the odds were against, but we will never give up. And we kind of frame the show to take you on this journey where we step out there and we come out with a little bit of a bang. We settle in for a few songs and we really take uh, this, this big arc because we know a lot of the people in the room are not there for us. But the reason we're there is to show them what we're all about. And, and to win them over um, as new fans and convert them to the cause. So, yeah, we can definitely feel like when that shifts and it's like always like in the middle of the set, you kind of get this big shift and they're like, OK, now I'm open and I'm ready to receive what you're about. I'm ready to experience like some of the more ridiculous things you might be doing up there. You know what I mean? Because you've primed me for that. Um, and it's the greatest feeling in the world. You know, uh, the, the the one time the time I like it the most is when we're playing a lot of hard rock festivals and like we're on stage before Metallica. One thing like a year ago, we walk out there and it's all like dudes in like black t-shirts like this. Cause they've been lined up all day to see their favorite band. And I come out there like a hundred miles an hour out of the gate. And the first thing they say is like in their minds, are like, you're not metal. You're not metal. You're not metal. You're not metal. And the second song are like, you're not metal, but I may be open to this. The third song you're definitely not metal, uh, but I'm kind of down. I'm along for the ride. And we'll take it into the ninth round like boxers. You know what I mean? And by the end, we've got everybody opening their minds to a new artist and and like shouting along and having a good time. So we we really thrive in that in that kind of environment. You talk about you're not metal, you're not metal. But I was telling you before, like I have a really hard time explaining to people. And you brought up Springsteen, that Elvis influence. You can see it 100% in the show. It. How do you describe the kind of music you make? Because I had a really hard time. It, it's like one of those one of those soups where you're just kind of throwing everything into it, but it's good at the end. Like, it's a little bit of everything. So if, if somebody asked you, well, oh, you know, what kind of music do you make? What do you tell them? I kind of call it 
bedroom arena rock. You know, it's like this modern DIY aesthetic, but brought to music that is intended to have this kind of like big, big classic feel to it. It's been really tough, you know, when you, when you don't sound exactly like Imagine Dragons light. You know what I mean? When you don't sound like an existing thing, people have a hard time categorizing you and then getting you started, you know, because they want to just put things into boxes. That's like a, a, a human trait that we have. We want to categorize things. Um, but I just kind of take a lot of um, inspiration from artists like Queen who dealt in so many different genres. You know, Bohemian Rhapsody is a rock opera. Crazy Little Thing Called Love is a rockabilly song. Another One Bites the Dust is a disco song. That's three completely unrelated genres. But at the end of the day, it's all Queen. And at the end of the day, it's the same vibe. And I feel like music has become so homogenized and artists have become such carbon copies of themselves with every release that that spirit of innovation and experimentation has been wholly lost in modern times. Well, I think part of that, too, <clears throat> to pull the curtain back a little bit on the industry is, you know, we saw it in the 80s, you know, the crew hits and every band on the Sunset Strip got a record deal. Smells Like Teen Spirit hits and every band in Seattle got a record deal. You know, the new metal era in the late 90s and early 2000s, every band wearing Jenko jeans with eyeliner on got a record deal. And when you've got radio stations that are at specific formats and you've got music trends, it's like everything is siloed. And then an artist like you comes along that doesn't really fit into any one of those silos you either have a home everywhere or you have a home nowhere. A hundred percent. It's so much harder to get started. But I think that when you finally get that little crack, when that PD takes the risks on you and that agent signs you and really goes for it and finally gives something that doesn't fit into the traditional mold and opening, you know, that there's no ceiling on it. And you kind of allow uh, a creative person to really run wild with a new vision. And that really excites me. But it's so many no's, you know, and yet you have to have the thickest skin. There's a lot of, I don't get it. And uh, that's that's a weird one, you know, but I don't mind that. It's, I prefer the I don't get it. You know what I mean? Like, if it's just not for you, that's, or you don't understand it, that's fine. You know what I mean? Um, what I would hate more is if they were like, oh, it just sounds like X or Y or Z. That would bother me. You know, like, oh, it's just Imagine Dragons. You know what I mean? Just a, a different version of that. That I would hate and I wouldn't make music, you know? Rock has gone through a lot since that height of that new metal era that now all of a sudden is coming back, which is amazing because that that's what was on the radio when I started my radio career. So I was kind of in the thick of that late, you know, mid to late 90s boom where like corns on TRL with Carson Daly. Like then rock kind of was not the cool thing, the hip thing that it was in the 80s and then again in the late 90s and early 2000s. Do you feel this resurgence of rock as an artist because I feel like we are in this time where rock kind of got driven back underground and it's starting to bubble back up again and there are so many exciting new rock artists do you feel that as an artist oh totally I think it's an amazing time for guitar driven music without a doubt 
I mean, there will always be this baseline that's there, in my opinion. But as far as its relevance to the pop culture, that ebbs and flows so much over the decades. Um, but I definitely feel like a massive resurgence of rock music. I mean, just just the last couple of festivals I've played, like it's undeniable. Like you see, you walk out on stage in Columbus, Ohio, and there's 10,000 kids there. And you're just like, yeah, but you know what? This is not like shoegazy stuff is, is not doing these same kind of numbers, you know? So I feel it without a doubt. You talk about guitar music. Wouldn't it be easier for you as a front man to not have to play guitar? Because to me, I get the rhythm guitar thing, right? I get the James Hetfield, the Dave Grohl guy that's just up there holding down the rhythm stuff. But to be the lead guitar player and the singer, are the sides of your brain constantly at war when you're on stage? Because... There's got to be the frontman showman that's like, yeah, I'm going to let's jump off the drum riser. And then the guitar part of your brain's like, I have to do this solo. What are you doing? It's really it's probably my biggest challenge on stage is that exact thing that you just identified, because also the way I make so many of my records is like I'll just be sitting in a room at a laptop in a bedroom and I'll play a really fun guitar part and I'll sing over it. And I've given no thought as to whether or not these two things can be done in real time together. (laughs) So 10 months will go by and the song will come out and I have to go play it live and I go, oh my God, this is so hard. You know, so I have to rehearse it for like weeks and weeks and weeks to teach myself my own song. Um, But like another one of my biggest inspirations is Prince. And I feel like there's just been no modern version of that in a long time. I would definitely like to be off the guitar more in the future though. So I can do like maybe uh, half the show off, half the show on. Does that mean that you're going to have to bring in a new member of the band then to be able to do it? Eventually. Yeah. I mean, there's been times in shows where I'll just like look at my guitar tech off stage. I'll just throw him my guitar. And I was like, I just want to be off for one song. It just, you know, the part, right? Just play it. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, well, I guess I'm on stage now, you know? So that leads me to the spinal tap question because Everybody that's ever played a show, especially as energetic as you are, and you're trying to sing and play the guitar, you've had a Spinal Tap moment where things have gone absolutely catastrophic. When was it for you? What's your Spinal Tap moment? I probably have the best Spinal Tap moment of any rock artist that's ever lived. Okay, that is a massive statement. So you need to back that up with some facts. We were opening for the Rolling Stones and we had about a month to prepare for the tour. And at the time we were rehearsing in an abandoned radio station on the water in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Someone had found this door was unlocked, turned out to be this 80s radio station, perfectly intact, like Chernobyl. You know what I mean? Just everything's in dust. So there's like four different boots in there and we all go, we claim one. Figured out the electric works, great. Don't know who pays the bill. We made these little makeshift rehearsal spaces. They're probably 200 square feet each, maybe a little smaller, 150. And we got the call to open for the Stones, 80,000 people. So to rehearse for a show like that, you got to really get the cardio up and you got to get used to going big distances. In this space, I can only turn in a 180 standing still. So what I would do is I would rehearse every single day. I would run down the stairs of the unit out onto the street and I paved out in chalk 
what the dimensions of the stage were. So I'd be running down the block with my guitar and then running back up just to make sure I was prepared for that show. Fast forward to the first show itself, and I'm backstage in Philadelphia at the Lincoln Financial Center, Lincoln Financial Field, and the stage manager runs up to me. And I'm about to run up there like I have so many times in rehearsal. And he says, listen, I got to tell you something right now. We put this special substance down on the floor for Mick Jagger to do his dance moves. If it starts to rain, it's more slippery than black ice. And I said, oh, slippery stage, got it. I've been in some crazy stages, got it. My music's playing right now. I'm about to run out there like I've been rehearsing, not only for the last month, but kind of like my whole life. And I charge out onto that stage and I take one step and it had just started to drizzle a few moments before. And I go flying into the air. My whole body is parallel with the ground, like a Family Guy cartoon, like somebody animated it. And similarly to that kind of cartoon, I go in the air. I felt like I was frozen for a second, totally parallel, and then oh, down. And I'm just like laying on the stage of this massive stadium. And the whole crowd is like 80,000 people. And if there was ever like a movie about my life, I think it would start with like an overhead shot of me on the ground, zooming out. And it's like, how did I get here? You know, that's the opening scene. Uh, but then I just took a minute. I looked at my band members. And I saw them just cracking up. You know, they were hysterically laughing in that moment. And we looked at each other and I was like, this just really happened. And I popped back up. Everybody goes wild, cheers, goes crazy. And we just destroyed that show. Uh, really burnt the place to the ground. So for me, that was my Spinal Tap moment. That's a good story. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a good story. And... You have to look at it, right? There's the pessimist and the optimist, right? The pessimist would be like, I can't believe I fell down and embarrassed myself in front of all of those people. And the optimist would say, well, I just fell down on stage in front of 80,000 people because I'm opening for the Rolling Stones. Right. <laughs> it's That's the best way to look at it for sure. And when I saw my band laughing and not like upset, you know, like that to me was the funniest thing. They were just like, you idiot. Like, you know, <laughs> it was like I came out so hard. You know, I had so many different emotions. And you're, you're thinking about your whole life. I'm thinking about my whole life before I got on stage every night. You know, even if it's like 200 kids in a basement in Mobile, Alabama, I'm, before I go on, like the things I'm thinking about, it's like from day one to present. And then I, and then I charge out there with, with all of that in mind. Um, but yeah, it was a really, a really memorable experience and I have the bruises and scars to remember it too. So what, because it was in Philly, was the fam there? The fam was there. Yeah. Um, it was an interesting experience, but no article in the local paper. About well, it, so. <laughs> then it was a failure. It wasn't much of an experience for anybody. <laughs> you know. When you spend so much time on the road, um, in your van, traveling around the way that you do, uh, there's a lot of quality time at truck stops. So I'm always very curious when you guys pull into a truck stop in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night, what's the craziest thing you've ever bought or what do you look forward to the most when you get in there? Because before I was on the radio, I was a, I was a roadie, I was a tech and I used to drive. Really? Yeah. And I used to drive semis and like those truck stops were life. Wow. That's crazy. Um, I look forward to nothing about a truck stop, to be honest, <laughs> uh, other than the toilet. And that's really it. 
And um, as far as like my grossest things I've ever seen in a truck stop, it's got to be food that's moldy. Yeah. You know, if, if something spinning on the rack, oh. like a hot dog. Those poor you- hot dogs. Who buys those that are just spinning on those metal rods? Somebody. I don't even know if that's really food, but we've seen like tacos on that, like little taquito things, like wrapped up things. And I saw and I picked it up and I was like, this is moldy. You know what I mean? And for that to go moldy, it has to be like 25 years old. You know what I mean? The amount of preservatives and that stuff. Um, but the things I do eat, I do get pickles from there. They have these like new bags of pickles that are in every gas station. And they're crunchy. And they're so good. Get the job done. They're crunchy. They give me a little salt. They give me a little sodium. And I have some cheese with it. And that's like my little gas station crudite platter. But those truck stops also, it's like one-stop shopping. Oh, yeah. It's like everything. you can buy the weirdest things in there, non-food related. But it's like three in the morning, of course, I need you know, a helmet that holds two beer cans and a stuffed armadillo and. Yeah. And and also like the shirts are just like magic, you know, like you get these t-shirts that you could not find in the most ironic Brooklyn hipster shop if you tried, you know what I mean? And it's like, it's like my life, my cats, my gun. And I'm just like, what? Who's this shirt speaking to? This is so many niche things, you know? Where's the place that you went touring that you were surprised you loved as much as you did so far. Oh, see, yeah. see, I love Seattle. Seattle's really cool. I mean, just the the history of it specifically as it pertains to rock music and just the overall vibe. You know, it's one of the my easily my favorite place in the West Coast. Is there a place that you're that you know in your head, I'll know Des Rocks is successful when we get to go there to play? Do you have that like bucket list destination where you just cannot wait to be able to go and play a show anywhere in the world? I think like if you're playing someplace like crazy, like I just saw on Guns N' Roses new tour, they have a show in like Tel Aviv, Israel. I'm like, that's so cool. I think like Israel would be a crazy thing to play. And I think Brazil would be a crazy place to play. Um, One of those two spots would be really like whoa you're going there because you're going there for a reason all the bands talk about those brazilian rock and metal fans and how crazy they are yeah they love rock and they love metal yeah i want to ask you my songwriting question i ask every songwriter on the show this question uh it's not a favorite song question it's not like that this is a craft question Mm -hmm. is there a song from any artist any genre you know look up the definition that is a perfect example of a well-crafted song. But you got to tell me what it is, and then you got to break it down from a songwriter's perspective and tell me why it's so perfect. Like a song that's so good you wish you wrote it. Uh, another One Bites the Dust by Queen. Um, I think it's so well-crafted from a songwriting perspective because it is a bass line that is so hypnotic and you can get so much mileage out of through the course of a three and a half, four minute song. You know, to just not get sick of that, to always want it, to have it existing as this undercurrent. And then to have this like pseudo funky rock guitar playing on top that doesn't come off cheesy. You know, a lot of Queen songs can be pretty freaking cheesy and I love them. Uh, but to pull it off and still have it have this like macho energy to it. You know what I mean? That's so cool. Anytime you're flirting, at the intersection of like macho, but also very like sexual and like 
very feminine to me, that is the most thrilling place to live as a songwriter and as an artist. I think Prince really occupies that territory. I think Freddie really occupies that territory. And the composition just kind of like waves and comes and in and out. And there's all this push, pull and tension, like those reverse piano notes where it's like, all this tension and release, you know, I'm obsessed with that. That to me is a perfect song and a song that also has a perfect production too. I can't tell you how many hours of my life as a child I spent roller skating to that song. Oh, I couldn't think of a better roller skating song if I tried. Oh, with my satin jacket and my fluorescent wheels. You have no idea how cool I was. Yeah. Or you just like, you internalize that and you just like that groove and that, and you're just off skating and it's perfect. So the rest of the year, obviously the record comes out August 25th. What's mm-hmm. the plan for Des Rocks for the rest of the year? Well, for the first time in six, seven months, I'm actually home in New York City for a couple of weeks, which feels good. Um, I've got a bunch of music videos coming out. They're going to be a lot of fun. And then in July, going on a little headline tour, uh, mostly the Midwest, no Boston, unfortunately, which by the way, Boston is like my favorite city to play, bar none. Um, and then we've got some exciting stuff for the fall plan that's not yet confirmed yet, so I can't say it just yet, um, but it's going to be a wild ride. As a New Yorker, when you say, I love to play in Boston, is it because you're a Mets fan? Because you're not a Yankees fan saying that you like to come to Boston, are you? No, I grew up in like a very religiously Yankees family. Um, but I don't believe in like city rivalry. You know what I mean? I just don't partake in it. You I might think, not, but the rest of us do. <laughs> you know, like, even like, uh, even last time I was on stage in Boston, I was thinking I was playing a place called like, uh, Royale. Oh right? yeah. Yeah. Royale. It was a really fun show. Right. In the middle of the show, like my whole guitar system failed and broke and everything. And, uh, we just did like the whole crowd did like Sweet Caroline. And it was really fun. And like, I led the whole thing. I'm like, bop, bop, bop. I don't care if I'm from New York. I still came out to New York, New York by Frank Sinatra. Nobody minded. You know what I mean? I, like, I'm all about like, let's cross the cities up. Let's cross the cultures. Doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to, I might be from New York, but for one hour, you can forget that. And then when I'm off stage, we'll talk shit to each other if you want. <laughs> as long as it doesn't end up in the local paper that you were singing Sweet Caroline in Boston, you're fine. The family yeah. won't disown you. Yeah, and then I'll never be able to come home again. Yeah. <laughs> it was so good getting to know you. When I when I came, because I, I work on a radio station in Portland, but I work on another radio station in Mass. And so when I went to Portland and saw you with Bad Flower, I had already seen you in Vegas, but the the difference between seeing you on stage in a room full of radio industry people... Mm-hmm. versus seeing you on stage in front of a bunch of just rock fans was a different experience for me. And after I saw you with Bad Flower, I was like, okay, I got to get him on the show. Like, I, I want to talk to him. And I'm so glad that I did because you're fun. Thank you so much for having me. You know, like, there couldn't be more of a different experience than like a showcase, which I think I've only done twice in Vegas ever. Um, and I was show. at both of them. <laughs> that's wild. Yeah, I mean, that's not a show. You know, it's it's just not a show. It it's, seems it's a, like an audition. And, yeah. And like the label and your manager's like, this is really important. Yeah. 
It's weird. And we had just we had just come off like a Spirit Airlines flight oh. from a show the night before from Atlanta. And the second we got off stage in Vegas, we like hung out for a little bit, got right back on a Spirit flight and went to play a show in Maryland. So we were like all out of sorts. Um, but no matter what, even though it's a showcase and not a show, like I, I'm drawing fun from other parts of the, the experience. You know, I'm kind of looking more at the band members and we're having fun and we're playing and we're like, okay, it's not about screaming fans tonight. You know, it's about us having fun and hopefully the people in the room can get into it. Well, the new album's called Dream Machine. Whether or not it's written about the van is up to interpretation. It comes out on August 25th and then obviously big announcements about plans for the fall are coming soon. You just can't talk about it right now. Not quite yet. All right. We will, so we will wait. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was so nice to meet you. Thank you. So nice to meet you too. All right. We'll see you soon. All right. Take care. There he is. The one and only Des Rocks, the new album, Dream Machine, coming out on August 25th. And if you want more details on Des Rocks, all the links you need are in the show notes of this episode, including that documentary about the triplets that we talked about early in the episode. You'll also find all of my links and you'll find the link to this week's corresponding playlist. I make a playlist for every full-length episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast that features all of my guest music and all the songs and artists that we referenced in the interview. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to like and follow the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday, plus every weekday you get the sit rep. The Situation Report features all of your rock news, music headlines, and entertainment updates, and you get it every weekday in around five minutes to help start your day with all the details you need. And by the way, the Mistress Carrie podcast is now available on YouTube. You can always join me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern for my video show on my official Facebook page. It's called Cocktails in the War Room. And of course, you can always find me on the radio. Get the details on all that and more at mistresscarry.com. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.